Well, friends, as we continue on in this hour of worship, we find ourselves in the last day of an eight-part sermon series on leadership lessons from the book of Nehemiah. For those of you that started with us eight weeks ago, what a great reminder of all that God has accomplished in the life of Nehemiah. And this sermon series, again, it's about leadership, but leadership different than how the world views leadership, not about a position or a title, but about influence. Every single week, I've shared this quote from Ken Blanchard. He's a Christian author and great expert on leadership. He writes in one of his amazing books that if in any way you influence somebody else's thoughts or actions, which let's face it, we do this all the time, right? We influence people's thoughts or actions when we talk to them through our body language, through how we look at people, whether we know or don't know, in line at the grocery store, our our social media posts influence people, some in subtle ways, some in very significant ways. But Ken Blanchard, he finishes that quote and says, if in any way you influence somebody else's thoughts or actions, you engage in leadership. And every week we've been reminded, what kind of leader do we want to be? God has called us to not just be good or great leaders because great leaders can lead people astray. We're called to be godly leaders. God has called Nehemiah to build a wall and we saw that he was able to complete that task in 52 days. He he enters into a season of being the governor over all of Judah, which Jerusalem is uh, the capital there. And for 12 years, and there is this shift, there's a transition that we talked about last week That is, he built this wall in 52 days. Hadn't been accomplished in 90 years. Two failed attempts before that. After he accomplishes that, then he does the long, hard work of governing the people, multiplying his impact, measuring what God wanted him to measure and meeting the needs as he saw fit. Now we get into this last half of the book of Nehemiah. And if the first half, if you could say it this way, was about the physical rebuilding and reconstruction of a very key part of Jerusalem, the wall. The second half is about the rebuilding, the restructuring of the heart, of the community. It is a a spiritual rebuilding, a spiritual renewal, a spiritual revival. This is about more than just bricks and mortar. This is about lives. And godly leaders have a purpose. And the purpose is so much more than just finishing the task. Godly leaders have a purpose that's so much more than just delivering the product. Godly leaders have so much more of a purpose than just accomplishing the thing and and signing off. Godly leaders have a purpose that actually transcends space and time and is deeper broader, higher, more eternal than any other purpose you can ever engage in as a worker for human needs. But when you work for God, there is a purpose that transcends everything. I want to read for us uh, the beginning part of the last few chapters of Nehemiah. We're going to just briefly cover chapters 8 through 13 today as we wrap up this series. But I'm going to read for us just the beginning of chapter 8. would love for you to, in your own time, maybe later this day, later this week, you can read the rest of Nehemiah. But let me read Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. Again, I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. It goes as this. When the seventh month came, the people of Israel being settled in their towns... 
all the people gathered together into the square before the water gate. They told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could hear with understanding. This was on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. The scribe Ezra stood on a wooden platform that had been made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbananah, Zechariah, and Meshalam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. Then they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and Levites helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. So they read from the book, from the law of God, with interpretation. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your very way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions of them to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This, my friends, concludes the reading of God's word as we say every week, thanks be to God. This picture here of a community is a community that hadn't just accomplished a work project. It was the beginning of a community that recommitted, that recentered, that reoriented, that remembered their purpose. And we get this little picture in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament, of the foreshadow of what the new community in Christ can look like, not only in the first century, but today. Though this was the Old Testament, though this was before Christ had come to fulfill the law, we get the gospel right in here. And today we're going to talk about the purpose of godly leaders, wherever you have influence, whether that's with your family, whether that's in your school, whether that's in your workplace, whether that's in your sphere of influence. If you would see that the purpose that God has called you to this work isn't just to accomplish the task with integrity, 
isn't just to accomplish the task with honesty, isn't just to accomplish the task with excellence and humility and courage. It is to do this work in a way that ultimately causes God to be glorified for the spiritual environment to be transformed and ultimately for people to come back to remember who their maker is and who God has called them to be. There's a number of things here, and if I can say it this way, there's, there's three things that they remember. They remember God's words, they remember God's way of life, and they remember God's relationship. Now let's go back into this, and I, I want you to catch this. This is all the people, all the nation of Israel. We heard last week that it's nearly 50,000 people Large amount, perhaps it says here, all the assembly, they gather together. I mean, this is a mega, a mega church. 50,000 people and Ezra begins to speak as the priest. And I want you to listen to this. You know, I, I have people every once in a while say, you know, the sweet spot for a sermon is 20 minutes. And I got some people like, no, 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 the sweet spot is like 45 minutes. That's a sweet spot. This guy, he preaches, it says, from early morning until midday. What is that, four, five hours? Can you imagine the sermon? All these people listening for hours and hours and hours. And during that time, it says, they were, and their ears were, of all the people, not just some, all the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. You see, God's truth when a preacher can get out of the way, is dynamic. It's captivating. It's powerful. You know, I've had some people say to me, you know, the best preachers are those that make Scripture come alive. And I say to them, no, no, no. Scripture says about itself, it's already alive. First Timothy says that it's alive and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. I think the best preachers are those that, that get out of the way and allow the life of Scripture to pour forth. All the people, they began to remember the words of God. You know, I've said this before. The word remember is so fascinating because in Scripture, the word remember outnumbers the word believe five times to one. It outnumbers the word trust two to one. It seems like that God is so, so intentional about Revealing to us how important it is for us to remember who God is, to remember who God says we are, to remember the way of life that God invites us into. And I believe that God is so intentional in that because humans, by definition, are forgetful people. You can also trace this through line throughout all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. All 66 books of the Bible have themes of remembering and forgetting and re-remembering who God is and who God calls to be. In fact, you can go all the way back to Genesis chapter three and the first sin that's committed by humanity, the catalyst that sets that into motion is an inability to remember God's words. You know, the serpent comes in to deceive and says to the first humans, to the woman first, did God really say you can't eat from all the trees of the garden? He goes after her memory. And in that moment, she remembers rightly. She says, no, 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 no. 
God says we can eat freely from all the trees of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's the tree that we can't eat. The serpent then goes after her memory again and says, Ah, you will not surely die. You will not surely die if you eat from that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in that moment, the words of the serpent seemed more real than the command of God that had come previous. God had said that if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of evil, you would die. But the words in that moment caused her to forget and she ate and then the man ate and all of a sudden things began to unravel. Their relationship with God, their relationship with each other, their relationship with themselves, their relationship with all of creation. Shalom was lost. Sin had distorted and broken the human condition. They hid from God. They hid from themselves. They blamed each other. We've been doing it ever since. We feel disconnected from God. We feel disconnected from each other. We hide ourselves in different ways from one another. We are filled with shame and we cover it up in our own modern, unique ways. And our relationship with creation is, is devastated. It's broken. We treat other people like objects. We, we fail to remember who God is and the life that God invites us into. And what's so remarkable in this whole section of Nehemiah, it is a reminder that what got them into their devastation in the first place could be prevented moving forward. Again, to zoom back and those who've been with us each week of this sermon series, historical context is key. The nation of Israel, as you go through the books of the Bible, begins to grow larger and larger, first with Abraham. He has a son named Isaac with Sarah. And Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. He has 12 sons. Those sons have children. Those, those families become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. This is not a geopolitical state. This is God's people whom God called to be a blessing to all nations. And God promised that through the ancestor, from the line of Abraham, all the world would be blessed. And we know in the fullness of Scripture that that ancestor is Jesus. But in the Old Testament, they forget who they are. They forget who God is. They begin to worship other gods. They begin to follow other ways. They begin to be seduced by the things that are right in front of them. They settle for counterfeits. They believe the shadows are the real thing. And things begin to unravel. Brokenness happens. There's death, there's destruction, and there's consequences. We see this in the book of Exodus with Pharaoh, you know, uh, enslaving the nation of Israel for 430 years. And then they are called to be God's people, led by Moses out in the desert. They're called to a place, but they become spiritually lost on that physical journey. And the journey that could have taken 11 days takes 40 years because they keep forgetting. They say stuff like, oh, we had it so much better in Egypt really? They're in the desert. They're eating manna. They get sick of it. And they're like, we had it so much better in Egypt. The food that we ate, they, they misremember the past. And they forget that God is providing for them, that God is carrying them, that God is shepherding them through the wilderness. And they want to go back. They want to overthrow Moses. And that's not the only point in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures. 
Time and time again, God's people, they forget, things go wrong, God rescues them, but then God always calls them to re-remember, to recommit, to come back together. And then things go well. But then as time goes by, as generations go, they begin to forget who God is. And because of that, they, they begin to become inhuman. They, they break down relationships and devastation just happens like a domino effect. And then God rescues them. There's this pattern again and again and again in the Old Testament. And in Nehemiah's time, the whole of the people of God, the nation of Israel are now in exile in Persia. This is modern day Iran. And he is in the capital, the winter capital in Susa. He is the cup bearer to the king of Persia, a remarkable position of influence. And yet there's been a group of people decades before that felt called by God to leave Persia, to go back to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple that Solomon had built and begin to reconstruct and to revive and renew their relationship with God. That was led by Ezra. But remember, as the weeks have gone on, we've learned that a group of people travel 500 miles to Nehemiah. They tell him that though the, the temple has been rebuilt, the walls are devastated. Nehemiah, reminder in summary, prays to God, goes before the king, following God's prompting, asks for permission, asks for the resources, travels 500 miles, gets to Jerusalem, begins to assess the situation, makes plans, recruits the people. And then in 52 days, despite opposition from outside, despite wrongdoing and injustice from within, in 52 days, the people accomplished something that 90 years worth of work hadn't done before. They complete the rebuilding of the wall. But now he is governor, again, in the season of 12 years. And he knows that the real purpose, the real work is not just that physical work, but it's the spiritual work to rebuild, to revive, to renew, to make whole again God's people who God has created for a purpose in the world. Now, let me say it this way. When we forget who God is and who we are, we become dismembered. Individuals, and communities. We become fragmented. We become fractured. We are torn in a million different ways. Should we do this? Should we do that? Should we value this? Should we value that? Our relationships are scattered. Our purpose is not singular in focus. And so the only way that we formally dismembered, haven't forgotten who God is, the only way we can be re Remembered, put back together is when we remember God and remember who God is. And again, the first is this, to remember God's words. The gift that they had is the same gift that we have. We have God's word given to us. Then during Nehemiah and Ezra's time, they of course didn't have the fullness of all of scripture. They didn't even have the fullness of all of the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures. They had the law, they had some of the prophets. And so we believe that Ezra that day stood up and he began to read from the law, from the Pentateuch. He read the Mosaic law, a variety of things. And it says that the ears of all the people were attentive. Now what's so key though, as I read through this, remember those names, those names that likely I mispronounced? Names that perhaps are tough to read through. 
it specifically says that it wasn't just Ezra reading, but it was Ezra and a group of people helping interpret what was read. This is so key. Take a look. Verse 8, so they read from the book. They, the community, the community of teachers, the community of priests, they read from the book, from the law of God with interpretation. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. You see, to truly remember God's words, it's not just to get through scripture, but to let scripture get through you. To come into your heart, to come into your mind, to to search your life, to, to have access to every area, every hope, every fear, every dream. The dark parts, the light parts, that the word of God would seep through, would saturate, would, would get through every area of your life. That is real understanding. That is real remembering. And what's so beautiful is they didn't rely just on the reading to, to understand it themselves, but they relied on a community to help them understand, a community to help them teach, a community to help them really understand what this was all about. You know, I say to people who are part of the Bel Air Church family, you need to be listening to other preachers other than me. And we have a phenomenal preaching team, Pastor Kim Dortilly, Pastor Mike Morgan, Rebecca Bershay Morgan. We have people who have come as guests who have taught. We have people who are part of our community that are remarkable preachers and teachers, but we also have people within our church family that teach classes, that lead groups, that teach Bible studies, that teach our kids, that, that teach our, our middle school and high school students. We have equipped many people in our church family to be interpreters of God's word. And as we, as human, fallible people, come with reverence and awe before the holy, miraculous, living word of God, we are providing an interpretation for it, but you must and we must always take what we listen and hold it up against scripture. I make mistakes. People make mistakes. And the gift that we have that they didn't have back then is that we've been given through Jesus, the Holy Spirit, to help understand what God's words are. And so my hope is, is that in this season, whether Bel Air is a church that you only join online or you are someone who joins online or in person, regardless of what that is, that you would surround yourself with people who can teach you the word of God. Because in this, we find God and we remember who God is and, and who God has called us to be. In fact, I have a long list of some of my favorite preachers, some of them alive, some of them dead, who I listen to, who I read on a regular basis. I am sharpened because of their teaching. And I would love for you to add to your, your playlist, to add to your life more godly biblical teachers that you can be equipped by, that you can be sharpened by. Don't just rely on me. Ezra said, don't just rely on me. He he equipped people around him to be teachers of the law so that the people collectively could understand. I also think that back then and today, we have such a diversity of people. You know, it's a community of 50,000 people. There's, there's style and there's, there's things that, that people resonate with more than others. Some people like a lot of intellect. Some people like a lot of laughter. 
Some people like a deep dive. Some people like a broad summary. There's no one way that God has given us to, to communicate God's word. There's no length of time that is the magic amount of time. There's no style. When you look at the life of Jesus, the way that he taught was very different than how Ezra taught, was different than how Jeremiah and Moses taught and David taught and Paul taught and Luke taught. The key is that God has given us a multitude of people that God equips to teach God's word. And it's absolutely essential that you put yourself into a place where you can be regularly remembering God's word. Because if you don't do that, you become dismembered. You become fractured in your life. You, you begin to fall apart. You begin to value different things and, and wrong things and, and counterfeit things and shadow things. And you experience, and I've experienced in my own life, that when I you know, just get too busy for God, when I close up God's word, I close up my mind, I close my heart to God's longing for my life. Ezra knew it. Nehemiah knew it. The people knew it. That they needed their hearts and their very lives and their community to be rebuilt and restored. Surround yourself with people. We've got amazing resources. You know, uh, one of the ways in which we can uh, grow in this area is in our life groups. I'm going to speak more to it at the end of the service, but we're about to launch a season just for seven weeks where you can join a life group either online or in person. And it's going to be a complement, a supplement to the sermon series that we're going through in the season leading up to Easter, in the Lent season. We're going to provide questions that your facilitators are going to ask you. And you can, you can sharpen one another as we go to God's word. It's an opportunity for you to be a part of remembering God's word. But here's what's interesting. It's not just remembering God's word, but it's remembering God's ways. There's something that happens here that I want us to catch. It's easy to overlook. After there was the, the reading of scripture, it says this, verse nine, and Nehemiah, who was the governor and Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. It's an odd thing to say. And it goes on. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. What kind of weeping is this? Is this a joyful, touched weeping? Or is this a contrite, sobering, confessional weeping that as you remember God, and you remember the life that God invites you into. It's not just a set of knowledge to attain, but a way of life. As you remember those things, you, you begin to realize that, that your way of life has gotten off track. In the nation of Israel, as they heard, as they remembered God's words, and they considered their ways, and they remembered God's ways, they were cut to the heart, and they mourned. In fact, later on, you can see in, in chapter 9, you can read it later, the whole of the nation of Israel, in light of hearing God's words, they, they confess 
before God, before each other, the ways in which they'd gotten off track. They confessed their own wrongdoing. They confessed their collective wrongdoing. They even confessed their ancestors' wrongdoing. You see, something happens when you allow God's word to get through you. There's moments where you go, oh, I don't know about that. I don't like that. And that's a natural, that's a normal thing when the truth of God's word cuts to the heart. My wife has said to me in my uh, relationship with her over the years that there was a season where she came back to the church after a season in college and post-college where she just really wasn't connected that much and in church and kind of got, like many of us do, kind of wrapped up in the ways of the world. Uh, she began attending a church where she had uh, moved to in Texas and, and she would go to church and the preacher would just simply preach God's word and every single week she said that she would hear these messages and she, she wouldn't like it. And she would say in the moment, I'm not gonna go, I don't like this. But throughout the entire week, she couldn't shake it. There was things that the pastor said that were from God's word that had, had revealed something in her. And she couldn't shake it and it stuck with her. And it was the word of God doing what the word of God does best. And she showed up next week. And the same thing happened again and again and again. Where things, at first she just, ah, but it stuck with her. It began to transform her. And she looks back on that season of her life and God did massive things to remind her of God's grace. And we see a picture of that right here, that while the people are mourning, that while the people are weeping, while they are just overwhelmed in the presence of God, just how far they've strayed, the people who are interpreting God's words, they say, don't weep. Don't mourn. This is a holy day. This is a joyful day because God forgives you. That's the fullness of the message. It's not just that you fall short. It's that, yes, you do fall short, but God has made a way. God has come to you to restore you, to reconcile you, to renew you. And this is the Old Testament. This is a foreshadow of the ministry of what Jesus Christ accomplished. You see, all of Scripture, it points to Jesus. All of what they read in the law that day, all of it, it points to Jesus. They hadn't yet met their Messiah. They hadn't yet met their Savior and Lord Jesus, but they knew that the fullness of God's heart was to restore and reconcile and revive, to bring people back to right relationship with God, with each other, with themselves and creation. This day is holy, this is verse nine. To the Lord your God, do not mourn or weep, and then verse 10, then he said to them, go your way. This worship service isn't the end. This worship service, as we hear God's word, isn't the end in which you can worship God. Go your way, go on about your lives. And it goes on to say this, go your way and eat and drink and also send portions of them to those for whom nothing is prepared. Live your life. Celebrate God's provision, but also out of the overflow of that provision, provide for those that can't provide themselves. They're beginning to say that this, this spiritual rebuilding, this spiritual revival, this spiritual renewal affects every single area of your life. 
in how you live and how you love, in what you bring into your body and what you send out of your household to care for those around you. Remember God's ways. You know, Jesus says in the New Testament, there's two different types of people. There's people who hear the teaching of Jesus and that's it. You know, it comes to them, they hear it, they listen to it, but they never put it into practice. Those people, he says, are like people who kind of, they've built a house on sand and the wind comes, the rain comes and the waters rise and great is the crash because of the foundation. It's been built on sand, but there's a second group of people who like the first, they hear the teaching of Jesus, but differently, they put it into practice. They realize that to be a follower of Christ is not intellectual assent, but it is a way of life. And those people who put it into practice in every area of their life, they're like people who build their house on solid rock. The same wind comes, the same rain comes, the same water rises up, but that house stands firm. There is a dynamic and canyon of a difference between people who just hear the teaching and people who put it into practice as a way of life. My hope for you is that as you hear God's word, hopefully on a weekly basis, in more ways that you would, you would allow it to seep into your life, that scripture would get through you, but it wouldn't just be when you hear it on Sundays that you would open up God's word throughout the week, that you would spend time in prayer, and then it would actually, it would change the way you live. It would change the way you see the world. It would change the way you see yourself. It would change the way you see God. It would even change the way you see your family, change the way you see your work, change the way you see those people. And God empowers you to live as an ambassador for him. You see, in this moment, they get a picture of what it means to be forgiven. And they go about their life worshiping God. The spiritual revival, the spiritual renewal, the spiritual rebuilding has begun in this community because they remember but remember, it's remembering God's word, remembering God's ways, but also remembering God's relationship. Later on, after they celebrate a festival, a festival of booths, and there's this national confession, as we get into chapter 10, all of the people, they gather together and they recommit to the Lord and they, they make a covenant with God. A covenant is very different than a contract. A contract is a binding agreement between two or more parties. A covenant is a one-way agreement. You see, God isn't a contract-making God. God is a covenant-making God. God is one whom doesn't say, if you don't live up to your end of the relationship, if you don't live up to your end of the bargain, I'm out. But rather, God says, whether you live up to it or not, I'm going to be faithful whether you do and remember all the things that I've called you to do or not, I'm going to do and I'm going to be faithful because I, the Lord, do not change. And so as God's people, they remember God. They remember that God is pursuing a relationship with them. As they remember God's ways and they begin to live this way of life, they are reminded that 
This is all about a relationship. This is not a religion. This is a relationship. This is not do's and don'ts. This is not about earning your way. This is about receiving a relationship from God. And so in response to the covenant that God continues to make with them, they make a covenant with God and they recommit. They write it down. They stand firm. In other words, they say, this is the purpose for our existence. This is why we live and this is why we breathe. This is why we wake up every morning. It's not just for our glory, it's for God's glory. This is why we do the hard work of sacrificing. This is why we do the hard work of pursuing the life that God invites us into. It's it's for God. And as you read through the rest of Nehemiah, because they remember God's words, remember God's ways, remember God's relationship, remarkable things happen. Things happen within the community, but it also affects their view beyond the walls of Jerusalem to the nations around them. And that's what's true for us today. As followers of Christ, who are part of the body of Christ, And for you, if this is your church family, Baylor Church, the more we remember God's words, remember God's ways, remember God's relationship, it changes how we relate to one another, but it also changes how we relate to the world around us. In fact, if you don't know this, we have partners, not only in the city of Los Angeles, but we have global partners around the world, church leaders, who are doing remarkable things in some of the parts of the world that that you might not think remarkable revival and renewal is happening. Places like the Congo, places like Cairo, Egypt, places like Harbin, China, places like Johannesburg, South Africa, places like Manaus, Brazil, in all these different places and in more places, God is doing a remarkable work through God's people who who simply said yes to Jesus. And we can learn from those leaders about what God is doing in their lives. In fact, at the end of the service, I have an invitation for you. Something is coming up that our church is hosting. It's exclusively online, no matter where you live. It's a great opportunity for you to to catch a heart, to catch a vision, to catch a sense of what God is doing around the globe through one of our global partners. But as we wrap up this series, I want to come back to this. God has called you to do a work in this world. And God has called you to do this work in community. We want to be that community that encourages you in that work, that equips you for that work, that inspires you for that work, that prays for you in that work, but also to invite you to join the work that God is doing through the rest of this church family. In this season, we want to be a church at work. There's work that we do when we gather, but also to be a church in our places of work. Bel Air is so unique in the sense that we have people who are part of literally every single industry in Los Angeles, people of influence, who through this season, especially in this Nehemiah series, are catching the vision of of being godly leaders, people of influence and impact for God's glory. You see, the way that our spheres of influence go the way our workplaces go. And the way our workplaces go, the way our industry goes. And the way our industries go, the way 
our city of Los Angeles goes. And the way that Los Angeles goes, it begins to have ripple effects around the globe. And when God calls us to join God in God's work of reviving and renewing all things until Christ comes again, it's a work that God is going to complete and finish in and through us. So join this work. See the opportunities in every area of your life to be a godly leader. Let's pray. And as we continue on this worship service, hang on till the end for two invitations that I have for you. Jesus, we thank you for the finished work that you've done on the cross. It's perfect, it's complete. Because of that, we are rescued, we are renewed, we are revived. We are reconciled back to God. So because of that, help us remember, God, who you are and who you call us to be. Help us to remember your words and your ways and this relationship that you've initiated. May we cultivate that as we worship in the rest of this time and throughout this week. It's in Jesus' name I pray and we sit together, amen.